uh, your indulgence. We, um, this morning, early, it's around 7.30, I got a phone call. Don't usually get phone calls that early. Uh, and the complaints usually are on Mondays, not before I preach. So I didn't think it was a preemptive complaint about my sermon. Uh, but we decided uh, we had someone here trying to uh, trying his best to dig through the snow, which had iced over, and it, it looked pretty precarious at that point. Because we canceled the service in Surrey, the school had shut down, so they weren't letting us in. We had to do an early service here, and uh, so we had to make a call. As it turns out, started to warm up. Although I went to church in Langley, Gary Vanderveen's church, and heard a distinctly average sermon from him. Uh, <laughs> And then, uh, it's okay, he's coming over for a glass of wine tonight, and he'll get uh, an average bottle of wine for his sermon. <laughs> but when I got home, uh, it started snowing again, actually, and we're like, oh, no, because then we changed it to say, let's, let's meet, and then it started snowing again where we were. But anyway, uh, that's all to say, uh, in future, we're going to set up a special committee so to the degree that you were highly upset and offended, you will be first on the committee for shoveling to make sure things are cleared out here. So when we have sign-up after, just put your names there. Uh, next time we have an elderly man trying to dig his way through the snow. Uh, no, not John Viss. He stayed home. Uh, we will make sure there's some young, strong men who are uh, with pick forks and uh, axes and whatever... Uh, propane tanks they want to bring to clear things out. So um, if you want to be on that committee, please talk to us after and we'll make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, so you are going to get John 9. I was deciding, should I preach a different sermon? And then I realized I don't have a different sermon uh, to preach. So I'm preaching John 9. And, uh, and we're going to pick back up at verse 24 to the end of the chapter. It's really a chapter you have to take in its whole. Um, so Verse 24, and we'll read on. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let us ask God to bless his word preached. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for this delightful testimony, which is truly a testimony that we all need to take on concerning a man who was once blind but now sees. And we ask that we would see and not be those who are blinded by sin and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So please open our eyes afresh, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. This is one of my favorite uh, chapters in in God's Word, uh, mainly because uh, there are certain places in God's Word that are actually filled with some humor and irony. And I think there's a lot of humor and irony here before us in these words. Uh, You see the Pharisees and the religious leaders are furious over the fact that somebody has received sight. And you have to remember there's a context to why they would be so upset that this man really has received sight from Jesus. Now, they are in opposition to Jesus, but every time Jesus does something, it is another sort of evidence or sign, and this is the sixth sign, there's another evidence or sign that he really is who he says he is, and this is almost the sort of final nail in the coffin when you consider signs. Now, why is that? Well, in the Old Testament, we are told explicitly that it is God and God alone who opens the eyes of the blind. In Psalm 146, verse 8, we are told it is the Lord Jehovah, who gives sight to the blind. God does. And in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord said to him, Moses, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Who is it that does these things, that gives sight? It is God. But then as the Old Testament unfolds, what you find is that there is somebody else who comes onto the scene who also has the ability to give sight. And that person turns out to be the promised Messiah. So when you go to Isaiah, for example, there's a lot of language about the servant or someone who will give sight to the blind. So for example, in chapter 29, verse 18, in that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. And this is taken to be the day of the Messiah. Later on in chapter 35, we're told, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So there's this idea that in the future, someone is going to come and there are going to be eyes that are opened. You get to the first servant song, chapter 42, that the servant is one who opens the eyes that are blind and frees captives from prison and releases those from the dungeon who sat in darkness. Same chapter, we see 
I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. So clearly, it is God and now this mysterious servant whom we understand to be the Messiah who has this ability to open the eyes of the blind. That's the Old Testament context. But you also have something else going on in the Old Testament and that is God is the one who blinds people. And by that, we don't necessarily understand that God goes around striking people's eyesight down, but rather that blindness is connected to sin. So God blinds their eyes, we're told in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah goes and preaches to Israel, that he will preach to people who are seeing but never perceiving, that he is going to make their heart calloused and dull, that his words are going to have the opposite effect of salvation. So these words are quoted in the New Testament in the time of Christ's ministry. In John chapter 12, He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Christ's ministry has the effect of blinding those who claim to see and opening the eyes of those who are blind. Now, something else needs to be said about this spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is connected with unrighteousness. So as you go through the rest of the New Testament, we've looked a little bit at the Old Testament. As you go through the rest of the New Testament, you find that spiritual blindness is connected to sin. So Peter, for example, will say, but if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Or John will say, whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Matthew will say when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, Matthew gives us the account in chapter 23, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish and then the outside will also be clean. And Jesus, speaking to the Laodiceans in chapter 3 in Revelation, says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, you are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So God opens the eyes of the blind. In the days of the Messiah, the eyes of the blind will be opened, but... There will also be those who claim to see, but they are blind because of their sin. And sin leads to spiritual blindness. So, you come to John chapter 9, and you find out that the Pharisees are doing everything in their power to deny that this miracle has happened. Why are they doing that? And the answer is, because they can't afford to admit this man's eyes have been opened because of the very simple reason that would be to admit he is the Messiah, that Isaiah has spoken of. That's why they were so against this miracle. It's not just that they go, well, a miracle happened, we we don't like Him. No, to admit that His eyes were opened is to admit that Jesus is doing something that, as the blind man says, has never ever been done in the history of the world. Of all the miracles that Elijah and Elisha and Moses and others did, no one ever opened the eyes of a man born Blind. That is the peculiar prerogative of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we come to chapter 9 and we look at the way this unfolds. Now, you will see that Christ's disciples are 
really quite foolish here because they see a man blind from birth. And I want you to notice, as we'll come back to this, how many times from birth is mentioned in this narrative. It's not without reason that John keeps coming back to from birth, from birth, from birth. That this man has always been blind. That this is not just a temporary thing that happened to him. And the disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see what they are doing? They are assuming that this man or his parents had to have sinned for this blindness to have taken place. Now, there is a sort of sense in which we can say sometimes there are physical maladies that take place as a result of sin and God's judgment. Sometimes. So it's not as though they are speaking total nonsense in a certain sense. Their nonsense is because they simply assume in the particular this has to be the case. But there are generalities in which sometimes people receive judgment because of sin. You see this uh, all through the Bible. You even see it with Ananias and Sapphira. You see it with uh, the case of Aaron and Miriam where uh, they speak against Moses. Her hand becomes leprous and Moses then says, please heal her. There's a sort of cause and effect. Sin leads to judgment. But it's not always the case, as we see in the case of Job or in the case of the Apostle Paul. Sometimes things happen to people, and the reason is not because they have sinned in any particular way. And Jesus tells them that it was not that this man or his parents had sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I want you to think about this because it's actually quite solemn. This man was born blind for the very simple reason that perhaps decades later, not months later, decades later, he would be the occasion of the eternal Son of God performing a miracle upon him and glorifying his name. He would go through many, many years of suffering so that God would be glorified. And that's solemn to think about when we think about our own suffering, and how long that suffering can take. Here is someone who went through this, but ultimately he was vindicated. Ultimately, God proved himself. Ultimately, grace triumphed. And so we can ask ourselves in any situation, how does God mean to glorify himself in this situation? And this isn't just some sort of pious platitude. When God glorifies Himself, you have to remember it is God who is glorifying Himself. And God is good. And God is wise. And God is gracious. And when He glorifies Himself in your life or in my life, His goodness, His graciousness, His wisdom, His power will ultimately be revealed to us when He glorifies Himself. A monster is not glorifying himself. God is. Now, Jesus then performs a miracle. After speaking to them, he spits on the ground. You see this in verse 6. And made mud with saliva. I can't help but think this takes us back to the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2 from the dust 
of the earth. And there's a sort of echoing back to Genesis. And he spits on the ground and made mud with his saliva. And then he anointed He anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go and wash. Go and be baptized. It's the same word. Baptism, washing. Go and be baptized in the pool of Siloam. Which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This must have been a very interesting thing for this man to go through. He doesn't know what's happening. He can't see. The next minute, there's mud that is put on his eyes and he is told to go somewhere. Jesus sort of makes a sort of clay and puts it on his eyes and then he's washing in it. It sort of has a parallel a little bit with Elisha's healing of Naaman the Syrian where he goes and has to wash. And after he washes, he is clean. So, This anointing happens and the opening of the eyes takes place through the washing. Do you remember when Paul receives his sight in Acts chapter 9? What happens? He receives his sight in connection with his baptism. He's blinded and then he is baptized and he regains his sight. This man born blind in John chapter 9 actually becomes a sort of prototype for every single Christian from this point onwards. That they are brought into a new realm, a kingdom in which they receive sight. And that as they are baptized, as they are washed, they are given the ability to see things that otherwise were blind to them. Now notice this miracle takes place. And as he washes, in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And others said, it is he. And others said, no, he is like him. But he kept saying, I'm the man. Imagine, you've actually received your sight, you know what's happened to you, and there are some people over there going, yeah, that's him, and others saying, no, that can't be him. And he kept saying, he's not just said, I'm the man, he's like, listen, I'm the man, I am that person, it's me. But then they say, well then, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. I want you to notice something very important about this man born blind. He is a great apologist for the Christian faith. And guess what? There is nothing ultimately that requires an advanced degree in theology for him to confound these people. He is simply recording What has happened to him? There's nothing where you need to go to a lexicon or ask for Thomas Aquinas to help you with the great mysteries of the faith. No, he simply says, I went, I washed, and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And actually, he doesn't know. And this becomes quite important for this whole story as it unfolds. Now, 
I think there's also other parallels with John chapter 5 and the healing by the pool because both have their condition for a long time and both involve stories of healing at a pool and both take place on the Sabbath and both lead to conflict with the Jews. And usually when you see a sign in John's Gospel, it always then follows with a sort of discussion or debate or teaching. And that's the point of signs. It's to elicit from those who witness them where they stand in relation to Christ. Now the Pharisees investigate the healing. This is in verses 13 to 23, and then there's a second investigation from 24 to 33. And we'll quickly go through these verses, but you'll notice that it is on the Sabbath. And as they bring the man who had formerly been blind, it is the Sabbath day when Jesus had performed this miracle. And when you get to verse 16, because they want to know how he received his sight. Some of the Pharisees said, and this is where you have the battle of the syllogisms. Now, that is a philosophical term. It's not particularly difficult. Just Google it. Very easy. This man is not from God. Why? Because anyone who keeps the Sabbath would be from God. Therefore, he does not keep the Sabbath. Therefore, he's not from God. That's how the syllogism would go. Sort of like that. But others say... Here's another syllogism. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So somebody who does such a sign must be from God. He has performed this sign, therefore he is from God. And so they're having a debate. Now, it's quite clear who the winner will be, but there's a division among them. So again, they say to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he says, he is a prophet. Now, what do the Jews have to do? Well, they do not believe that he had been born blind. So what do they do? They call his parents. And they ask the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Now, the parents don't come across, in my mind, as ultimately heroic figures right now. Why do I say that? Well, they say, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now, you see what happens here? John inserts in those brackets there, the brackets aren't original, but it's to help you understand, that they are scared of the Jewish leaders. And that is why they're letting the man who was born blind, who has now received his sight, speak for himself. So they say, ask him. Well, that's no problem, because this guy is not faced by anything. So for the second time, in verse 24, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, you've got to read this a number of times, but there's something very interesting going on. Jesus and the blind man are both identified for different reasons as sinners. You see that in verses 1 to 2? The man born blind is identified as a sinner. Now Jesus is identified as a sinner. And it's ultimately solved in verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. So how do we answer that in verse 24? He says, well, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, 
that though I was blind, now I see. Listen, I don't know. He may have sinned, he may not have sinned. I'm just telling you, I was blind and now I see. And you've got to deal with that. Now, the Pharisees understand, as this man understands, that if Jesus really did open the eyes of a man born blind, which has never ever been done, and which symbolizes the dawn of the Messiah and the age that would bring about such blessings, then Jesus likely isn't a sinner. So, the guy says, hey, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know, but he opened my eyes, therefore really he can't be a sinner. So he's answering the question without implicating himself too much. Now, you see what ends up happening. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Notice that they're repeating themselves. And this is where I think he begins to taunt them a little bit in verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And this is my favorite part, I think. Do you also want to become his disciples? You know, in like grade 5 to, let's say, 11, this is unscientific. I have no evidence to back this up except personal experience, and I just feel like saying it. But when a young man likes a girl... He shows it in very peculiar ways, doesn't he? And sometimes it's by um, being mean. And girls do that too. And they don't know how to navigate situations because they're immature. And uh, sometimes, you know, someone is allegedly mean or nasty to someone. And it's because they like them. And that's how I cure all of my heartbroken boys when they say, she was mean to me. And I say, that's because she likes you, son. Ah, okay. Go along. <laughs> Congregant writes a scathing email. Ah, they must love me. <laughs> <laughs> it's great for dealing with all sorts of troubles. Someone's mean to you, it's because they love you. They really like you. They're just struggling with their immaturity to convey it. <laughs> so it's great because that means everyone in the church loves me. Now, there's a little bit of Truth, you see, what he says here is like, listen, you're so taken up with him. You're so interested in him. You're asking so many questions. Surely you also want to become one of his disciples. It's like when Elijah was taunting the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. There's a time and place for that. But they respond, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And he says, why, this is an amazing thing that you don't even know where he comes from, and yet he opens my eyes. You're the people who claim to know the Old Testament Scriptures, who know about prophets, who know about miracles, and yet you don't even know about this man? And then he makes a very telling statement, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And there's actually uh, a sense in which the Old Testament does tell us that if people are uh, actively rebelling and sinning against God, not occasionally making mistakes or sinning uh, here and there, but they're actually in opposition to God, God doesn't listen to them. God turns a deaf ear towards them. And so he's absolutely right. God does not listen to sinners. Therefore, God must be listening to him because of what he's done. And then verse 32 is the clincher. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened up the eyes of a man born 
blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So what do they do? Well, they excommunicate him. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. Look what happens now. Remember the false theology of the disciples in verses 1 to 2? They actually end up believing that theology. You were born in sin and you would teach us. And they excommunicated him. They cast him out. Now, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So he found him. And this elicits a wondrous confession where eventually he says, Lord, verse 38, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, two things happen here. The man born blind is able to see Jesus for who he is, but then Jesus makes a point about those who do not see. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see, who claim to see, may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now, I just want to alert you back to something I said about Isaiah. This is not the first time this has happened. When God's people get caught up in idolatry, they lose the ability to see. So in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has just been commissioned by the Lord. He said, Holy, holy, holy. And he has to confess his sin and, and all of those glorious things we know of, God says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. This had happened in the past and it was happening now in the present. And then in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 6, make the heart of this people calloused. This is precisely what Christ's signs are doing to these Pharisees, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Idolaters are blinded by God. Now, what can we say by application? First is this. Do you notice how after Jesus heals this man, he withdraws from this man. Why does Jesus withdraw from the man who was healed? And I think it's not explicitly stated. You've got to kind of read what ends up happening. He withdraws from this man because this man born blind who has been healed has to grow in his faith. Could Jesus have stayed around with him and fought off these bullies? Yes. He could have confounded them as he always does. But he actually leaves this man to grow in his faith and speak for himself. And this becomes symbolic of the sort of macrocosm of what Jesus does. Jesus leaves this world. He comes, he lives, he performs the greatest miracle that is his death and resurrection, but then he leaves the church. Was Jesus with this man born blind? In a certain sense, yes, just as He is with us. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. But He also leaves us because we have to grow in our faith. We have to persevere. We have to struggle in the face of opposition. And this man goes through actually quite an interesting trial. He is given sight and all of a sudden, 
his life gets, in a sense, more complicated. He's excommunicated from the church. In other words, salvation will bring you lots of problems. And Jesus withdraws Himself from the church as He sits in glory. Not that He has abandoned us, but that we are left to fight the good fight. We are left. He doesn't just come down and destroy our enemies. He doesn't just come down and right every wrong. He doesn't just come down and correct every misunderstanding. He doesn't just come down and tell us what we should do here, there, and everywhere. We have to live by faith, not by sight. And this man, oddly enough, receives his sight, and that's actually when he begins to live by faith. But I want you to also notice something else, that his birth, as I've said, is referred to several times. Verse 1, verses 19, 20, verse 32, verse 34. Going back to him being born blind. And after his healing, people fail to recognize him. Remember after Christ's resurrection, people failed to recognize him? As I said, this man is a prototype of all true Christians. After conversion, there's a sense in which you should be unrecognizable to those who saw you and knew you in your former way of life. Some of us, and I praise God for this, don't go through that. They grew up from a young age. They believe. They're faithful. There are some of us, however, who were converted later on in life. And if you were, you should be unrecognizable in a certain sense from the person you once were because your eyes have been opened. And when our eyes are opened, everything about our life changes. I was thinking about this this week. What really changed about my own life? You know, I thought about, you know, my eyes were blind and I was given sight. And what does it mean for people sitting and listening to this sermon? Are they going to be able to relate to this man where they were once blind, but now they see? And what is it about our life that is so different? And there are a thousand things I suppose I could say, but one thing really struck me is that I've never felt so bad about myself as I do when I'm a Christian. I've never felt so bad about myself. My sins have never stung like they sting because now I see what my sins mean in the sight of God. What they have done to others. How they have harmed my own life and how they still continue to affect others. I've never felt so bad about myself But you know what's also true? I've never felt so good about myself. I've never felt so good about myself because I have been made alive in Christ. I have been given sight that I now see everything completely differently. That when you look at your sins, you've never felt so good about yourself because there is a Savior who dwells in you and He is for you. And you look upon Jesus and you can feel confident that you are going to be with Him in glory. That you look upon the cross and it takes on meaning. And what is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? We can both look at Jesus, but the true Christian looks at Jesus crucified and it means everything in the world to them. 
That you look at Christ resurrected, it means everything in the world to you. You look at God and His promises, and they are the things that actually keep you from total and utter despair. You look at the promises that everything is working together for your good, and you believe it. You look to the promise that this world is not our home, and you believe it. You look to the promise that God will never leave you or forsake you, and you believe it. You see, everything that God says about who He is and who Christ is, You now believe it. And so your confession is a very simple confession. It doesn't require an advanced degree in theology. It simply requires you to say, I was once blind and now I see. I now see that I am a sinner and I am a great sinner. But I also see that there is a great Savior who has died for my sins and has been raised from the dead and will come again and will take me into glory, not only me, but all those who have longed for His appearing. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for sight, and for sight that is by faith, which is the best sight of all. We pray that we will believe and understand And so turn from our sins and be healed. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.